0: Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting recent work in natural language processing.
1: This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Today, our guest is Hal Dume. Hal is a full professor in computer science at the University of Maryland College Park. He is currently on leave at Microsoft Research in New York. He's interested in studying how to get computers to learn language through natural interaction with people. He's also interested in studying how we can do this in a way that promotes fairness, transparency, and explainability in the learned models. Welcome to the program. Thanks. So how can you reduce structure prediction problems into re learning? Uh, people who are listening to this uh, podcast, many of them care about structure prediction problems, and not many of them uh, probably care about re learning. So could you tell us a little bit of how you would do this and why would you do it?
2: Yeah, sure. So I think in some ways, this is actually a lot easier to explain now than it was five or or certainly 10 years ago. So one of the things that changed recently is with the advent of sort of sequence-to-sequence style neural network models and their variants, it becomes natural to think of a lot of structured prediction tasks as uh, these sequential decision-making problems. The easy example is something like machine translation, or, or I guess even easier part of speech tagging, where the output is just very clearly a sequence, in the translation case, a sequence of words. And then this can be like very easily interpreted as a sequential decision-making problem where in each step you're deciding on the next word to produce. For other problems, you know, it's often a little bit more complicated. So for dependency parsing, uh, you know, there's probably about a half dozen different shift-reduce variants that transform the problem of constructing a directed dependency tree into essentially again a sequential decision making problem. And so I think that while this sort of style of thinking of structured prediction output as being one of making a sequence of decisions hasn't historically been the way that many people in the field think about it. I think nowadays because of the success of these models it's becoming almost the de facto way of thinking about these problems. And then once you have a sequential decision making problem the question is okay, well, now I have to train this thing that's making Making the sequential decisions. And then the question is, how can you train this? And the traditional answer is you train by something like maximum likelihood or some max margin criteria or something like that, where you say that you want observed training output to have high likelihood under your model. But the sort of reinforcement learning and imitation learning paradigm offers, I guess, alternative solutions to that that have some advantages in terms of hopefully leading to better models.
0: I I guess I'll jump in here early as you're talking. Talking about applications of this. I've been doing a lot of work on semantic parsing, where what you're parsing into is some kind of executable representation, like a program. And often you want to train these things just with question-answer supervision, so you don't get a labeled sequence. All you know is, after I've finished a sequence, is this correct or not? And now this looks very, very much like a reinforcement learning problem. And so we've seen very recently a whole bunch of reinforcement learning methods being applied to these kinds of tasks.
2: I think this is a really interesting example. So the case is where if I think about this, you know, sort of as like a traditional structured prediction problem, the structure is in a latent variable more than in the output. And I think that it is very natural to think about this as reinforcement learning, where basically you make a sequence of decisions, and then at the end of the day, you basically get like a thumbs up or thumbs down or some sort of scalar signal telling you whether that whole sequence of decisions was good. So yeah, so I, th- I think we're seeing a lot of that. I think there's a little bit of a risk When you think about structured prediction problems as reinforcement learning problems, there are two fundamental things that make, I would say, most, if not all, structured prediction problems easier than your sort of arbitrary reinforcement learning problem. So the first is that the world is deterministic, typically, and also typically fully known. So in translation, I know if I say the next word should be dog... The next word is going to be dog. There's no chance that like the world conspires against me and does something unexpected. And so, so, so that's sort of the first way in which I think this the structured prediction setting is easier. The second is that so there there are of course many variants of reinforcement learning, but one of the standard models is the setting where you really only get one chance at life. So like you know you have a robot and and, and maybe it can live a million times, but in each life execution, it has to. Sort sort of commit to one path and just do that path, right? So I think Tim Vieira has been calling this you only live once, YOLO reinforcement learning. And I think that this is also a case that's a little bit different in structured prediction because in structured prediction, you can easily produce and best lists and you could... In the semantic parsing example, you can, of course, compute for each of the hundred best outputs, what's its reward. And so I think this gives you a bit more power and leverage that you can use that's sort of semi unique to the structured prediction setting that potentially like makes things a lot easier. And I, I think that's also why imitation learning comes up and which we haven't talked about yet, but
0: yeah. And. Another difference with typical reinforcement learning, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but it it feels like in more traditional reinforcement learning tasks, you have to spend a lot of time thinking about what your reward is. And very often you have just a point reward after some long search, or you have to try to give some hints to guide the search until you get a good point reward. But if you're treating structured prediction as a reinforcement learning problem, you basically have a, a, a fixed known reward at every step.
2: Yeah, I think that's, I, I mean, I think that's like 90% right. So I think there are some cases that I want to set aside. So your semantic parsing case, I think, is a little different because there you really right. don't know until the end. I mean, maybe you could craft heuristics or something, but, but by default, you don't know.
0: Yeah and you said that's more of a case where the structure is latent it's not in the output space so it's questionable whether that's even the same thing here right
2: Yeah I think that's right so I but I think yeah in the traditional sort of structured prediction setting where the the output that's structured at least in cases where you know we've successfully we meaning the broader community have successfully done things it's almost always the case that you have some intermediate signal about whether you're doing a good job if the gold standard translation is the hippopotamus walked into the lake and you're the first word you produce is building. (laughs) You probably know at that point that you're on the wrong path. Mm
1: -hmm. So imitation learning came up a couple of times now. Could you tell us what it is?
2: Yes. So I think of imitation learning as sort of this very broad category where you're trying to solve a sequential decision-making problem like you would in reinforcement learning. But instead of learning just from a long-term reward that you get at the end of completion of a task, you get to observe some someone else, someone else in quotes, performing that task. Uh, and then hopefully you can, you can learn from their behavior. And I think there's two dominant styles within imitation learning. So one, I would roughly term learning from demonstration. So the setting there is that the only thing you have access to is a bunch of executions of the task by an expert. Um, And this is basically a static data set that you can query. And in some ways, this is maybe the closest match to the way that people by default think about structured prediction as sort of a reinforcement learning task because I have a training set, I can interpret the gold standard outputs as some path in my sequential decision-making process, but that's sort of the the only access I have to the expert. And then there's the more interactive setting where you assume that at any point in time, the expert is queryable. So in translation, you would say, like, okay, the gold standard output was the hippopotamus walked into the lake and, uh, you know, maybe... My translation system starts off and it produces a big. And then you want to ask the expert, like, okay, if you had started your sentence with a big, how would you finish that sentence? And so this is, uh, this obviously requires much stronger assumptions about the sort of access you have to this expert. But when you do have this access, you can often get much better algorithms. I think one of the things that people work on in the space of imitation learning for structured prediction is really trying to get at this question, how can I compute that expert? So you can think about the expert simply as like a search task. So I have some prefix of my output, and I want to minimize over all suffixes the overall loss that I would obtain if I, uh, I produce that suffix. And so um, for some tasks, this is trivial, like uh, sequence labeling under a uh, camming loss. The answer is always just do whatever is the right thing to do on the next word. In some cases, a bit, it's a bit harder. So, you know, for dependency parsing, have Goldberg... Uh, uh, and colleagues have a handful of papers on how to do this computation efficiently. And then for other problems, you know, we we may be able to approximate it reasonably well, but I don't know, for instance, for like blue score with machine translation, whether anyone knows if there's an efficient solution. Um, though there is for like string edit distance. So there's a bit of a tension there in terms of, you know, what do you want to optimize versus what is efficient to approximate.
1: So in your own work on uh when using imitation learning in machine translation, what would you do in order to approximate this loss?
2: So in practice, for these sort of general text prediction tasks, like whether it's translation or caption generation or something like that, we've tended to use edit distance because it, it's actually quite easy to write down. You basically just sort of decompose the standard string edit distance dynamic program. It's pretty efficient. It also has this very nice property. Because in string edit distance, the worst case is I write down a word and I shouldn't have written it down. And so then I'll do a delete. So the worst case loss that you get for any single decision is one, with one exception, which is if you accidentally produce end of sequence prematurely. So you have to sort sort of special case that, because that will obviously cost a lot if you've only produced one word and the the actual thing should have 20 words. But string at a distance is very easy to compute and um, it's pretty easy to optimize.
1: So how sensitive is the performance to these choices of different ways of approximating the reward.
2: The answer here is actually complicated and I think pretty interesting. So there's actually kind of a big open question Okay, maybe it's not a big open question, but I think there's an open question about you know, are you better off optimizing the thing that you really care about, let's say it's blue score or are you better off optimizing something simpler that's maybe easier to approximate? There are two issues here that are worth disentangling so one is, can you compute what the optimal action would be or what the optimal decision would be from any state? That's basically just sort of a standard sort of computer science-y question. And then there's the learning question, which is, I might have a relatively simple loss like string edit distance that's pretty much always 01, except for this end of sentence case. Or I might have a really complicated loss like Meteor or something like that, where there's all sorts of partial credit for synonyms and stuff like that. And there's a little bit of an analogy to even like binary classification under surrogate losses. Like, are you better off optimizing the thing that you care about or are you better off optimizing something that's close but is maybe much, much easier to learn? And so I I don't know the answer, partially because we don't know how to do this computation for the harder thing. I mean, I think generally there does seem to be sort of of benefit for getting closer and closer to the loss function you care about. But I think that there's definitely a plateau at some point where it's probably not worth it. And and you're maybe even making the learning problem harder. As an extreme example, maybe the loss function you care about is just do I exactly match the gold reference, right? And so you get one point if you match it and zero points otherwise. This is going to be super hard to learn because like any mistake will will throw you off entirely. So there there's sort of obvious cases where it's bad to go for the loss that you care about, at least initially, you could imagine some curriculum y thing or something like that. But yeah, I, I think the short answer is I don't really know. So, so that's uh,
1: fundamentally oh, one of the biggest issues with reverse learning as standard, right? That we still don't know how to define good rewards. But I guess the difference here is that we were actually able to get good performance on some of these standard tasks with our not great uh, approximations for the reward.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I think there's also a little bit of a disconnect, you know, between research land and real land, right? In research land, we're happy to say, like, oh, the metric I care about is blue. I'm going to optimize Blue and then end of story. Um, But, you know, if you're actually deploying a production machine translation system, like Blue is probably one of many metrics that you're tracking. And, you know, do you really want to super fine tune for one of them when what you really care about is, you know, sort of like user experience or something like that? So. You know, I I, I think that's also slightly why I'm not super concerned with am I optimizing exactly the thing, because probably that exact thing is not even what I really want to optimize anyway.
0: Yeah, there was a recent paper, I believe it was by folks at Salesforce. They used rouge instead of blue, but they optimized this directly and found that it was much worse than say multitasking with the language modeling, even though they got higher Rouge scores, yeah. the output just looks incomprehensible. So why should you do this?
2: Yeah. It used to be the case, at least at the like document understanding conference, that they would use Rouge where it first threw out all stop words. And so if you train against that, lo and behold, you'll learn to produce a summary with no stop words because you can pack in more content words. Which is obviously not what you want.
1: Right. So I heard you in multiple occasions talk or Right about dagger as your favorite algorithm could you tell us about it as, as a concrete way of doing artificial learning
2: yeah so i i often say that dagger is my favorite algorithm and the reason i i say that is because it's uh it's simple it works pretty well it, it's not like you can't beat it for sure it's been beaten both sort of theoretically and in practice but it has sort of a A nice flavor that also has led to a bunch of subsequent development. So the basic idea is, um, okay, if I hand you a pile of demonstrations, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to do what is uh, traditionally called behavioral cloning, which is basically just a fancy way of saying I'm going to do supervised learning against the ground truth data. This basically means I'm just going to... So given every state that the expert visits, I get to see the action that they take in that state. And then um, I'm going to train a classifier to r- try to repredict that action. So this is essentially what, you know, for instance, in sequence-to-sequence sequence models, this is basically how they're all trained um, by default. The problem, which I guess, you know, we've known about since at least, like, 2000. Well, I've known about it since about 2003. I'm sure that other people were perhaps aware of this before me. But the problem, I guess, is I think like Mark Riller was Ronzado has has started calling this exposure bias. So which I think is a, a good name. So it's basically that you're training the the decision maker, assuming all past decisions are made correctly. And so then at test time, if you start making incorrect decisions, Um, You sort of get off of this gold standard path. And then, you know, in the worst case, the model has no idea what to do. So what Dagger does is it says, okay, first run supervised learning or behavioral cloning. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the thing that I learned there and I'm going to run it over the training data. And it will probably diverge from what the expert did. And every time it does, I'm going to ask the expert, what would you do in this state that I didn't see the first time around? So I'm basically asking the expert, like, how do you correct for the errors that that the The model is making. So this will give me a new data set. So I'll take the union of the original data set and this new one, and I'll train a classifier on the union. Basically, the resulting classifier now has learned to recover from the mistakes of the previous one, but of course it will make its own novel mistakes. And so you now want to repeat this process and, you know, sort of in like a traditional iterative optimization kind of fashion, you can show that at some point in this process, you don't have to run it too long, you'll end up with something that has reasonably good performance guarantees. Nowadays, I think most people who do Dagger would call what I just described batch Dagger, because you're sort of building a dataset training, building a dataset training. No one really likes to do batch learning anymore, so pretty much everyone does online Dagger. The main difference is just that you okay, so when you would have created an example that you would put into your data set, instead of doing that, you just do an online update on that example. So you start off by doing your standard online updates across the whole data set, and then you pick one example, make predictions, ask the expert for advice, take that, make those updates, go to the next example, and so on. So this was not the version of the algorithm that was initially proposed, but you can analyze it too. It works fine, especially in today's everything stochastic gradient descent style. This is, I think, the one that people People do in practice. How important is
1: it to use the new experiences as opposed to correct the gold standard experiences uh, when you're mixing these uh, examples, in, especially online?
2: Right. So, so, I guess just to be precise, the, the terminology that I like for this is that um, I think of this as I'm making a sequence of decisions. And at some point, I'm going to ask the expert, what would you do here? And so you can ask, what policy was I using to make the de- the previous decision? So I'll call that the roll-in policy. And then I can ask w- what policy would make future decisions. And I'll call that the roll-out policy. If you always use the expert as the roll-in policy, then you're just training on the gold standard trajectories and life can be really bad. But, I, mean, I mean, certainly in theory, in practice, it's rarely really bad, but, you know, it's usually you could do better. And then there's this question, like, okay, do I completely switch over to my learned policy at some point, or do I interpolate between the expert and the learned policy, or whatever? Um, this also comes up in like the mixer algorithm, um, where where they do some sort of interpolation. So I think here the answer is slightly unsatisfying. So the answer is that, like, at least as far as theory goes, all theory says you should just never roll in with the expert at all. You should just always be rolling in with the policy. So like if you look at the the regret bound that you get for Dagger, there's this term that you pay that depends on how you're doing the roll in. And if you... Actually just did this roll in according to the learned policy. This term would be zero, which would be like the minimum in the bound. But in practice, no one does that because you end up wasting a lot of time exploring parts of like when the, when the learned policy is only seeing like zero or 10 examples, it's making essentially random decisions. And so you're getting like really not so useful feedback. The only place I've seen someone really try to analyze this is in the scheduled sampling paper. Um, so scheduled sampling is basically running something like Dagger on a recurrent neural network. And they have three or four maybe different schedules for interpolating between the expert and the learned policy. I don't remember there being like a really strong, obvious winner. And I think that actually for like the more complicated problems, they only reported results for the thing that was best and didn't report a comparison. So I mean, my, my own experience is I pretty much always just use 0.99 to the example number, probability of rolling in with the expert. So you get sort of this like, uh, geometric decrease of use of the expert. And I usually pick that 0.99. So that, like if I know that, you know, the data set has 10,000 examples and I'm going to do 10 passes over the data. So that's like a hundred thousand examples. So I pick the 0.99 so that. That number to the hundred thousand is like point one or something like that. So that, you know, I have, cause all, you know, if you set it to point nine nine and you have a million examples, then like by the time you're not even five percent of the way through the data set, you're not using the expert. So I don't know. That's my heuristic, but you know, I don't think, I think the thing that's unsatisfying here is that the theory says you should use always learned roll in, but I think all practical experience says <laughs> that that's not true. So there there's clearly a, a gap in the analysis.
0: Can I jump in here with a, a clarification for people who aren't familiar with this? Um, so you've been talking about an expert, uh, and I think it, we haven't really said exactly what that is, and you, someone listening might have the idea that I'm like getting additional annotations on the fly, even at every training instance, as you said, that like now we do this online Dagger kind of stuff. Um, so to be super clear, let's say I'm doing part of speech tagging, and I'm predicting, I, I'm getting input words, I'm predicting parts of speech. Uh, and if I use policy roll in, as you've described it, so I'm I'm predicting parts of speech. And now, uh, let's say I've made a few incorrect predictions. Where do I get an expert for what comes next? Is this from the data?
2: Yeah, so thank you for asking this question because this is the question that everyone asks and, um, yet I still clearly gloss over it too much. So, um, so abstractly the, You know, this notion of an expert came from the fact that, you know, a lot of imitation learning comes from, for instance, robotics, where you would actually maybe ask a person, you know, what would you do in this case? Um, We, you know, don't want to do that. Um, So we, we, we generally take advantage of the fact that, like this thing that I mentioned at the beginning, that in structured prediction land, we know the world exactly, it's deterministic, and so on. And so what I really want the expert to do is I want the expert to tell me, At this point in time, if I make this decision and subsequently make all other decisions optimally, sorry, let me rephrase that. Um, (laughs) What I want the expert to do is I want the expert to tell me what action to make right now so that if I made that and all subsequent decisions optimally, I would minimize my downstream loss and so this is a point where it would be nice to have a whiteboard but um in the sequence prediction under hamming loss this is particularly easy right so like let's say i've made three mistakes so far under hamming loss i just pay for the total number of words that i tag incorrectly um and so if i
0: have hamming loss is another term that some people might not be familiar with this is this is zero one did i get each action right right
2: Yeah, that's right. So, so how many, um, how many words do I tag incorrect? If this is the loss that I care about, if I'm asking myself, how should I tag the fifth word? It makes no difference how I tag the previous four words, and it makes no difference how I tag future words, because in the future, the best thing to do is just tag every word right, regardless of, of any errors or any correct decisions I made in the past. In this case, the expert is like super easy to compute. It's just the best thing to do on word five is whatever the label is for word five. In the translation example, it's harder, right? So if the, if the truth is a big hippopotamus ran into the lake and I produce a hippopotamus, it's not clear. Should I just? ignore the fact that I missed the word big, or should I try to say a hippopotamus that is large ran into the lake or whatever, right? So there's a bunch of different ways you could try to repair. And the way that you know is if I made all subsequent decisions optimally, what would minimize my loss? So our experts are pretty much always in these sort of simulated experts where you can, at least in principle, computationally evaluate all possible future suffixes and compute a loss and then pick the minimum. In practice, you probably don't want to do that because there are too many. Then you have to have algorithms for doing this.
0: So how do you do this in practice for translation? The naive thing that I can think of, I haven't done this for translation before, but I'm thinking if my label is a hippopotamus walks into the lake and I produce a big, if I just go by word index, I'm going to skip hippopotamus because hippopotamus was the second word in my input and I said big there. And so like do you have to shift something over? Like how how does this work?
2: Yeah, so this is hard. My recollection, which I hope is not wrong, but my recollection is that in for instance the scheduled sampling paper They use a strategy which has been called data as demonstrator, which does exactly what you say. If the truth is a hippopotamus, blah, 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 and you produce a big, then the right thing to do is say blah, 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 and you're going to totally miss hippopotamus. So so that's maybe not great. The answer, of course, depends now on what your loss function is. If your loss function is string edit distance, then I'm going to be like super hand wavy here. But if your loss function is string edit distance, then essentially this big is either going to correspond to an insertion uh, of an extra word, assuming you complete it as hippopotamus, blah, 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 or it's going to count as a swap where you swapped the word hippopotamus with big. So let's assume that your string edit distance is set up so that the cost of a swap is bigger than the cost of an insertion, which It's kind of an arbitrary decision, but it makes this case work out. So if the cost of a swap is bigger, then it's going to say, okay, at this point, the best thing to do is to think of the big as an insertion and then complete by saying hippopotamus next and and then going on. But this does depend on exactly how you set up the costs for the the different edit operations.
0: You mentioned earlier that it's tractable. You can write down easy solutions for edit distance, I assume this doesn't include some kind of language modeling loss because you would expect that to be a lot more informative on whether the swap or the insertion is more reasonable, right?
2: Yes, you're right. It does not. If you wanted to be fancy, you could have some sort of uh, non-trivial costs associated with swaps and insertions and deletions, right? You could say swapping horse with pony is less bad than swapping horse with astrophysics. Yeah, I've never tried that.
0: I guess a, a bunch of people have done similar stuff for like label, like predicting class labels, yeah. right? It doesn't seem that far to push this toward um, using it inside of an algorithm like this.
2: So I, I think this is a totally reasonable thing to do. I, I simply haven't tried it. I think one thing that's not totally obvious is how you would compare those costs to cost of insertions and deletions. So, you know, how much better is it to replace horse with astrophysics than it is to just drop horse altogether? I don't know. I mean, th- but then this gets into metric design and, you know, all this other stuff.
0: And it's totally context-dependent, which will, like, kill your algorithm for efficiency. And
2: Yeah, that's right, right. So because it's at a distance, it has to be word by word. You're not allowed to condition on anything else or the dynamic program goes away.
0: Yeah. So
1: we talked about iterative learning for nlp why do we do this do we do this to improve our the speed of inference do we do it because it allows us to incorporate more dependencies across the different variables that we're predicting why would we do it
2: yeah so i think this answer has actually changed dramatically over time so in the beginning meaning 10 12 years ago the answer was was fewer independence assumptions and speed so at the time the dominant solution to structured prediction problems were things like conditional random fields and max margin Markov networks, where you basically have to make pretty strong independence assumptions in order to get tractable inference algorithms. And so one of the things that was, I guess, a selling point of the sequential decision-making view is that you could condition on anything in the past and you sort of get that for free. I mean, you don't get it for free. You get it at the cost of you have to do this iterative training algorithm, but you get to do greedy search for free at test time, which means that you get to condition on whatever you want and you get to be fast. I think, that now the story is a bit different, because I think that to some degree, the incumbent techniques these days are sequence-to-sequence models and, and their variants trained on maximum likelihood loss. And so now it's really a question of, is the test time behavior of this model being substantially hurt by the fact that it gets into areas of the search space, or it it basically, it makes errors that it doesn't know how to recover from. So if you have a part of speech tagger that's getting 95% accuracy, is this worth doing? Probably not. You should just stick with your maximum likelihood trained thing, A, because there's not much headroom, and B, because if your thing is 95% accurate, 95% of the time, it's making the same predictions as the expert anyway. And so this whole notion of getting additional data off the training path that sort of goes away. So I think that where you would hope to see sort of interesting things happen are cases where the model does often sort of get off the gold path in ways that are potentially recoverable, but that don't sort of by default have data to recover from. And then I think the other is that if you're optimizing maximum likelihood, by default, you don't get to take into account whatever you think a good loss function is for this task. So you're training your machine translation system to optimize likelihood regardless of whether you care about blue score or meteor or whatever and so you get the advantage that you can inject your specific loss into the training process i think this is
1: a fairly common phenomenon like in, in most the most of the models i work on the performance of the one is far from perfect and we definitely make a lot of mistakes that can be recovered from. I think it's fair to say that integer learning for NLP is not mainstream yet. So what's preventing us from using it all the time is the performance actually compelling enough for everyone to be using it or not.
2: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. One is I think that for very well studied problems like, you know, part of speech tagging or dependency parsing or whatever, they're pretty much always consistent gains to be had, but they're not huge. And so I think that it hasn't been this mind blown experience where it's like, well, I have to do this thing. And I think, you know, for more complicated problems, it's actually hard. So while you get this nice benefit that the test time behavior is fast, you do pay at training time and you sort of pay in two ways. So one is that you have to compute this expert, which takes time. And the other is that... The computation and integration of the expert doesn't always play nicely with the way that we like to pack things to work on GPUs and, and all that sort of technical engineering stuff. right Because like if you think about translation, what I'm really asking you to do if you want to run this algorithm is I'm asking you to decode your training set many, many times and decoding is slow. and this naturally makes training slower. So part of the answer to your question is the sort of imitation learning style techniques or people are gaining awareness but there's not, as far as I know, off-the-shelf algorithms built, built into standard toolkits. It comes with additional training overhead. And I think part of it might be that as a as a community in NLP, we tend to think a lot more about representation than about algorithms. And so I think that when we tend to look for improvements on problems, we tend to default think about how can I model this thing better? Because, I don't know, like... I really like language. Like, it's fun to think about, like, how do I model language? And I think we think more about that and less about algorithms. And I I think that's totally fine. I think that, you know, the the best of both worlds is that the people who love thinking about representations can do awesome representation work, and then people who really love algorithms can do awesome algorithms work, and then you plug them together, and then you win the universe. But, you know, I think that practically, we'll need sort of better toolkits, we'll need better open source software. For instance, the fact that I kept sort of going back to the string edit distance example. So as far as I know, there's maybe like me, and this is limited by who I talk to, but there's me and like one other person who knows how to do this so it, it's not hard to derive but it takes a little bit of work and so i don't think there's been a paper that for instance shows what the algorithm is for computing this uh this expert efficiently and so on so i i think that there's um there's still a bunch to be done in terms of getting tools and resources out
1: are there certain characteristics of a problem once you see them you say oh this is a good fit for learning?
2: Yeah, every problem. (laughs) No, more seriously. I you know, I think it's like, you know, if you're already doing really well on the problem, it's not worth the effort. The other thing to keep in mind is that if you're getting 95% accuracy, it's maybe not worth it. The other thing that's sort of changed with the advent of sort of deep learning stuff is that we basically know now that we can overfit anything, right? But if you overfit your training data Then rolling in with your own policy versus rolling in with the expert are exactly the same thing. This has changed with sort of deep learning models. This used to be a small issue. Now I think it's a major issue. So you have to be very careful that you do some sort of like regularization or dropout or something like that to ensure that your training performance is not artificially bloated over what your test performance would be like. Or you have to do cross validation, but then this adds all sorts of extra overhead that's really difficult. And now I totally forgot, actually, what was your question? (laughs)
1: Are there other characteristics that will tell you that this is a good fit?
2: Well, I mean, from a practical perspective, if you have a super enormous data set, A, you might be able to just fit it pretty well. B, you might be really unexcited about decoding it over and over again, which is maybe one of the reasons why there's not a huge amount of work in machine translation land in this space, because there you tend to have very large data sets. But, you know, there are certainly plenty of problems where you have large data sets, but models still aren't very good. So, I don't know. I mean, I think, I don't think I have a, a much better answer than just if there's not that much headroom, it's probably not worth it. Otherwise, if it's not a computational burden, it's, uh, it's possibly worth trying.
1: Uh, sounds good. Uh, are there uh, any other thoughts on this topic?
2: So, we talked about imitation learning for sort of the bulk. I wanted to circle back briefly to like reinforcement learning more broadly. There's been a handful of papers. The first one I know of that came out was, uh, was by Stefan Rietzler looking at, quote-unquote bandit structured prediction. This is basically the setting where you have a structured prediction task, but all you get to know at the end is whether you did a good job or not. You never get to see what the right output was. There's been similar stuff to this in the past. So I remember this paper by Ryan McDonald where they're trying to train a perceptron to optimize some downstream task behavior, which has a very similar flavor. That was probably from the late 2000s, maybe or maybe the early 2010s. So the setting that I always think about when I think about this problem is if you use Facebook or or Twitter and you have friends who post in languages that you don't know, you can often ask for a translation. And then sometimes they'll ask for, you know, a rating, like, you know, how good was this translation? Like one star to five star or something. And then you'd like to use that to improve the quality of the translations. This looks much, much more like a reinforcement learning problem where I make a sequence of decisions to produce a translation, And then it's only at the end that I get feedback about whether it's good or bad, and I never get to know what a good translation would have been. So this has a flavor of reinforcement learning in the sense that you get this external reward. It also has this YOLO flavor where I don't get to show a user 25 different translations and ask them to like score each one. I sort of get one shot at this. But we do still have the advantage that we have in structured prediction that we can do all sorts of computation offline because we know how the the quote-unquote world works. So I think this is um, an interesting middle ground where you have a bit more structure than in a Of pure reinforcement learning setting. And I guess my side comment is reinforcement learning is really hard. If you can avoid doing it, um, you're probably in a pretty good place. When we have problems like this where there is additional structure beyond just reinforcement learning, I think the degree to which we can take advantage of that structure is really good. And I haven't actually seen any work on this where people try to take advantage of this. So for the bandit structured prediction work that I've seen, which it's not. Not a particularly big community, it pretty much all treats it like just straight up reinforcement learning, our own papers included. And I I think that's leaving a bunch on the table that we could possibly
0: capitalize on. I guess circling back to the semantic parsing, people do do this a bit in semantic parsing where you, you maybe take it there are ways of building up a program that you would execute where you can do partial executions as you're going and use that to help you in your search. So yeah, other than your structured bandit, I guess semantic parsing is another area that's at least close.
2: Yeah, no, I think exactly. I mean, you know, I I honestly haven't followed semantic parsing for the past couple of years, but a couple years ago, I remember sort of the, maybe the dominant paradigm is, you know, essentially produce an end best list, run all of the things in the end best list and cross your fingers that one of them gives you the right answer and then do fancy stuff with the result. So I think that the bandit structure is a little harder because you only get to evaluate one, but you can still compute a lot. And so this gives you a lot more potential power. Um but I, I actually I, I think that semantic parsing and program synthesis and you know these problems, I think these are really awesome problems to think about in this space. There's a lot of room for both building better imitation or reinforcement algorithms and and hopefully, you know, getting better at this problem. I think it it, it could be really fruitful. Yeah.
1: On this topic, I think you had a recent paper with colleagues on in ICLR twenty eighteen, I think it, the algorithm is called Slope. Would you like to tell us a little bit about it?
2: Yeah. So re- slope. You know, I could, I could tell you about it for an hour, but I won't. So this paper essentially started as this paper on learning to search better than your teacher, which was ICML 2015, where we essentially had a new imitation learning algorithm. And then we observed that with sort of small changes, you could apply it in the structured bandit setting. And so there's a little theorem in there at the end of the paper that says this isn't going to be too bad. So then you can go implement that after the paper is accepted (laughs) and realize that it just doesn't work at all. <laughs> and so then we had a couple of intermediate like workshop papers where we were really trying to understand why doesn't this work? I mean okay, at a very broad level there's too much variance in the system, but but like more specifically the thing that goes wrong is that suppose that I make a few decisions according to my current policy and then at some step I decide to try something new to see if it's better than what my default would have been. So I try this new thing and then at the end of the day I see some loss or some reward associated with it. Now the problem is is that I don't know whether that loss should be attributed to the decision that I changed or whether it's due to other decisions along the path. And, and in particular, the thing that went wrong in the previous algorithm was taking into account decisions that I'd made previously. So like if I make three errors before I sort of try this deviation, then this deviation is going to look bad regardless of whether it's actually a good deviation or not. The Reslope idea is basically to try to automatically do this sort of credit assignment. And so roughly what it does, or at least my, the way that I explain it in sort of anecdote is, so suppose that I have a policy for like getting to the library and today I decide instead of turning left here, I'm going to go straight and see if that gets me to the library any faster. Now, so I I choose to go straight and let's say after a block, I run into one of my friends at a coffee shop and I grab a cup of coffee and I talk to them for five minutes and then I end up late to the library by four and a half minutes. Now, does this mean that this was a bad decision? No, it actually means it was a really good decision because I can attribute five minutes to my coffee. And so this actually overall saved me 30 seconds. And so what Reslope is trying to do is it's trying to learn just from this end-of-the-day feedback, or what were the decisions that I made that sort of added up to that long-term reward. And so then by doing this credit assignment, you can do a better job of trying to figure out whether this deviation you made was good or not.
1: This sounds a lot like inverse reverse learning. Is that one of the ways you would do this?
2: Yeah, so... Actually, that had not occurred to me when uh, we were working on this. But yeah, I mean, I I think there is very much an inverse reinforcement learning flavor. So for for people who don't know, right, so inverse reinforcement learning is the task where I get to observe some behavior. I assume that the agent who is executing this behavior is sort of near optimal for some reward function, but I don't know what that reward function is. And then I try to reverse engineer what that reward function was. So like you watch, I don't know, Hal write papers and uh, you don't know why he's writing these papers. So you try to imagine, okay, what could it be that he's optimizing for that's causing him to make these decisions? Yeah, so I I think there's a connection here in the sense that you're trying to infer something about a reward. I think the difference is that in traditional IRL, the data with which you do this is typically demonstrations. Whereas in Reslope, the data with which we're doing this is this reward that you only get at the end. And I, I guess just as like a side comment, one thing I um, I had no idea about until we were doing this Reslope paper. So we did evaluation both on traditional reinforcement learning tasks and on structured prediction tasks. And um, one thing I didn't realize is that if you take a lot of standard reinforcement learning algorithms and you force them to only observe reward at the end rather than observe incremental reward as they go along, it makes the problem much, much harder, which I, I guess is obvious in retrospect. But I didn't realize to what extent these algorithms really are relying on getting consistent incremental feedback that's sort of pointing you in the right direction. Like if you just give end of decision reward like these things get really really difficult very quickly
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense and I yeah, I haven't honestly tried any of the methods so I only only have uh, secondhand experiences so
2: my encouragement if you do is there was a nice summer school at the Vector Institute this past summer on deep learning and reinforcement learning uh, I guess it's just a plug for anyone who's listening so if you're interested in learning about reinforcement learning like the talks there were I think really really good I mean I also gave a talk there I'm not trying to like say that my talk was really, really good, um, but mine was about imitation learning. So if you want to learn more about imitation learning, you can look there. But a lot of the others had really good practical tips for like, if you want these things to work in practice, here's what you have to do. And I, I think it's uh, it's super valuable to hear this from people who have really been working to get these things to work in practice over years or decades in some cases. Uh, all
1: right. Thank you very much for joining next day. This was a fun conversation.
2: Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it.